Welcome to Talk Town. Stuart McCulley lived his childhood growing up in the country. His love for sport and teaching has led him to establish next level elite mentoring. These are some of the moments that make up Stewie's life. Hello Stuart, how are you today? Going well, thank you Rick. My first question to you is what's your earliest memory? My earliest memory, goodness me. So, well that's, that's got me got me thinking about some pretty cool things actually. I grew up, I was born in New South Wales, Glen Innes actually, which is sort of just near Tamworth. Don't remember much about that. We moved pretty pretty soon after that as a youngster to Armidale, which is a very cold place. Um, so I do actually remember snow in Armidale, which was, a, which was an interesting time. Um, stayed there, I reckon, for about three years, three or four years as, as a young kid. And early memories of there was we had a park next door to our house. The park was, and I think it's still there. It was a like council land, and we had the whole park to ourselves. So for me, as a youngster, running around with my two younger twin brothers, um, we had the whole place to ourselves. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a great question, actually. <laughs> and um, do you remember sort of like that sort of lived country lifestyle? I've been to Arbidale, so it's a beautiful place. Um, mischief you got up to as kids? Did you so just with your brothers older or younger? Did you follow them around or mm, y- younger brothers? So we all and we're only a couple of years difference in in age. So a lot of stuff used to happen within the yard and mud pies and. There wasn't a creek, but there was something similar, which I know we used to get into a bit of mischief and, you know, look at those exploring times with kids. And um, sport-wise, I think we were too young to be into a sport. We were just playing as kids on a on a playground. I remember there was a, I reckon there was a, a swing set, a slippery dip, and one of those big giant concrete um, pipes. <laughs> that was it. So you had to make your own fun climbing it or running through it or making a cubby house in it or whatever. So, yeah, it was, yeah. Any disastrous falls, broken limbs? The the biggest memory for me of that was learning to ride my bike and we were on a, we were on a slope driveway right next to that park and remember it was a blue bike. Mum and Dad have let me go down and, yep, I've hit the one stoby pole that was <laughs> alongside the, the driveway no brakes, classic funny home videos moment. <clears throat> Bang! I've hit that, wrapped myself around it, and Ooh. had a. <laughs> yeah. You you bring up some good memories and bad memories here. Rick. <laughs> That's what this does. Um, and um, so, what did you go to kindergarten in that area? What was your sort of first memories of going to kindergarten or mm. preschool? Yeah, it was a preschool. Uh, it was called Benvenue Primary, I think. So the I think you had sort of a preschool at, at the primary school at the time um, and again there was lots of space um, in fact my son only yesterday said dad did you used to play marbles as a kid and I went you betcha I did we had the tom bowlers and we had this and that and the cat's eyes and he said do you know how to, do you know the rules of the game I can't remember I was a little kid and we used to have the handfuls of them we used to make this little Almost like a little crater in the in the dirt, and we used to flick them around in that little spot. And <laughs> said, you "Used to play for keeps." I said, "Yeah, I remember that bit." <laughs> you lose the big, your best marbles. Yeah, Ooh, yeah. So <laughs> playing marbles in the schoolyard and memories of 
uh, they used to bring bottles of milk yep. back in the day with the little the little um, the little cap on top, which is like aluminium foil cap, used to peel off the top of it or something like that. Yeah. Weird, what you remember as a as a youngster? <laughs> Were you the milk monitor? There was a job going as the milk monitor. Yeah, I don't think I got that one. And getting yeah, peeling I'll, off, I'll, I'll, straws in them. I'll, that's right, they had straws, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can't remember being in the monitor. I certainly enjoyed uh, when they came out, and I certainly have consumed a lot of milk in my day, <laughs> especially as a teenager. <laughs> Did the same thing at school, it's incredible. With the coal there, I remember the milk. I grew up in Victoria, country Victoria, and when they went and got the milk, they'd be all they'd freeze, and the freezing milk would lift and push the caps off, <laughs> so they'd have this little white stem, then the cap sitting above. Right. And it was just gross. We know oh, we couldn't handle it when it was frozen. But. Never experienced that. <laughs> I do remember Armadale being super cold um, <laughs> in the Highlands there. So yeah, that was our first experience to snow. But wow. Yeah. Um, primary school. What, what was your first primary school experience? Hmm. Primary school. So still in Armadale. I, I never remember much about school, and I think this is typical about Stewie McCulley. This is about, <laughs> it was never about in this classroom, it was the socialising and mucking around on the, out in the yard afterwards. We had this long, it seemed like long at the time, I was only a little kid, but this is long playground area, and had, it was lined with these huge, big, um, tall trees, and they had those cicadas that used to make that, those funny noises. I'm not, that, that's where I remember about that place. Mm. Run around with my mates and chasing insects in the trees. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, for those who don't know you, you're two metres tall. So at that stage, were you a tall boy in primary school or were you just the same as everyone else? At- yeah, not, not, not till probably about year five. Year five, I started being tallish. Yeah. I wasn't super out of control, but uh, we moved to... Bordertown um, when I was in year three. So I had year three, four and five in Bordertown. Uh, my father moved there with his work. Yeah, I was never the real, real tall one, but from year six onwards, it all started to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and did you show any sort of sporting ability for any particular sports at that age? First memories is really, cause we'd, we'd come from New South Wales, <clears throat> never into, into footy, but um, Started playing a little bit of tennis, which that didn't last too long. I was just tall and gangly. Uh, border town, yeah, probably more about year five. For school football, you used to play for your town. So you didn't play for Border Town Primary, you'd play for Border Town. I do remember quite vividly lining up for Border Town, the Roosters, um, in year five on a Saturday morning. Um, I used to be plonked in the in the forward pocket, I was pretty useless. Didn't get too many too many kicks, but we had a guy by the name of David Grenvold, who was uh, about a year older than me. He used to play in the centre. He used to kick left foot, right foot, get all the touches, and I used to marvel just watching how skillful a player he was um, as a youngster at primary school, and obviously went on to be a great a great player in the uh, SNFL and uh, VFL. Yeah, he played for yeah, he played, played for the Bombers. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, 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 number 29. So, yeah, I still think I'm bringing that up with him. I said, Gee, you're a good player. <laughs> <laughs> I you, watch you from the forward pocket, <laughs> sailing goals over my head. Mm. And uh, 
that sort of stage was it just football, country football, was it, was it, was it or football, winter, cricket, summer type sort of situation? Mm. I don't really remember too much from that. that. That sort of age level, year five, I was dabbling in playing football. Uh, mm. Then we moved to Border Town, um, from Border Town to Narracourt, just down the road, mm-hmm. and things started to, to come together a bit more. And I think it's fairly typical of primary school kids as well that you started playing a few different more sports. I, would, I was playing school cricket, school football, and then it wasn't until, I suppose, early high school where we started to get, get a little bit serious about what's happening in sport. And uh, did, was it uh, a love for, towards football at, at that stage, or still not? Just experimenting with all sports and absolutely experimenting. Uh, basketball, massive and still is really dominant down in Narracourt. Mm-hmm. Um, so once I started getting a bit of height, basketball actually became probably the the sport I was invested in a lot more. I used to spend weekends riding my bike from out, just out of town up to the local basketball place and just practice on my own. I used to love doing it. Um, So then I suppose from sort of year year eight, year nine, I started getting good at both, playing footy and basketball. Um, And it was really, I couldn't split them. I'd really devoted time to both. And having the height, so I was (coughs) jumping and (laughs) remember practicing wanted to dunk. I wanted to dunk a basketball. So playing under 16s, I was, I had had some had some spring in the step, and I thought I've got to be able to do this. And I couldn't. You couldn't just go out and dunk a basketball. You had to have, I suppose, the spring and the leap and the timing. And I still remember I had uh, I progressively started practicing jumping to the ring with a tennis ball, and up, and I'd eventually. Dunk the bar, dunk the ball into the into the ring. Then it, that turned into a little bit larger ball. Then I used to grab a football because you actually grab it on the end of it. So I used to run up and dunk the football because you could hold it easier. And eventually my jumping and strength became greater. And eventually we got to the got the basketball. So <laughs> uh, still remember to this day. I used to practice and practice and dunking at home and on the weekends and finally in one of the under-16 games, I actually dunked a ball in under-16s. That was my dream. That was a glory day. If I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of misses and the boys had set it up and doing the layups at the start, I'd try and do it and get warmed up, but it eventually happened in the game and I ticked that box. Oh, cool. <laughs> that was cool. Did that become a regular... No, nah, it, was, oh. it wasn't a regular thing. Uh. <laughs> um, people used to, you know, cotton on to getting in the road of you and <laughs> just foul you or whatever needed. But, yeah, I really enjoyed basketball. Mm-hmm. And, and I honestly believe, looking back at things now, Rick, that me wanting to jump really well as a basketballer gave me that ability as a tall young lad to transition into being a, a really good ruckman. The only difference was when I started playing a-grade football as a young kid. As a basketball, you jump up <coughs> straight, two legs, or just straight up and down, and you didn't protect yourself. So I was taught pretty early by some elder statesmen that if you're going to survive in this footy game in the ruck, you need mm. to get your knee up, big fella. Mm. Otherwise, you're going to wear a few. <laughs> <laughs> Break a few ribs. <laughs> Break a few ribs. So, 
life in Narracott, was there any, can you remember sort of mucking around things on the weekend, sort of, same thing, what did you get up to on the weekend? Was it sort of motorbike type? Thing? We were both at age where the motorbikes, sort of trail bikes came out. Just, mm. was, it, was it that sort of thing you sort of got involved in or was it, what did you get up to? Yeah, so we lived just on the outskirts of Narracourt. Um, so we were really just sort of a suburb of Narracourt, if you can call them the outskirts. So we never had the motorbike, but the neighbours had a little Wee 50. We used to, we'd hear it fire up and we'd go and just... Up here, oh hi, how you going? And jump on it, and then other neighbours just down the road, they were actually on some property on on a, on a bit of space, and they had the the Honda One Two Five or something equivalent. And we'd hear that thing crank up after school, and we'd just appear at the fence again. The boys <laughs> would go, "You want to you want to have a bit of a, a bit of a play?" That 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 was good fun. On the weekends, I I just remembered riding my bike. It was about Five k's to go to the ride to the school. There's only a couple of k's to get into the into the actual town itself. But I used to spend my a lot of weekends if I wasn't playing competitive sport, I'd ride around on my push bike to all the different sports. So in in summertime, especially, I'd ride to the tennis set up, watch people playing tennis, go and watch people playing cricket and there'd be three or four different games on in different venues. I just used to love watching it. <laughs> it was the life of the town, wasn't it? It was the life of yeah. yeah. You, you live in the country and that's that's what you did. Um, it's interesting I'm thinking about it now that, you know, I've always been happy to be on my own and just go and watch, watch sport and just for the love of it. Mm-hmm see some people and what some great things happen and maybe that was the start of where I sort of ended up. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Yeah. <laughs> school, how did you go at school academically? How mm. did you find study? I had to work hard um, at getting through through school. I was, I did year 12, bumbled my way through, had to work fairly hard the score I got for my year 12, I passed, but I didn't quite get enough to get into teaching. Um, didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew I loved sport and I loved working with young people. <clears throat> so in the 80s, uh, PE teaching was a, a pretty pretty cool thing to do, and I thought, you know what, I think that's that's the good fit for me. So first time around in year 12, didn't quite get the score, so I actually went back and did year 12 again. It was a really good move. Learnt other skills, I did different lessons which were probably a bit more appropriate for me and yeah so again school for me was social um, and I just had to grind my way through my 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 studies. And um, so when you graduated which um, university did you go to? Yep so I, fin- I finished year 12 in Narracourt High School mm-hmm. and at the same so after I finished that I moved to Adelaide at 18, I uh, went to Flinders Uni. <clears throat> it was a Sturt campus at that time. Yeah, so you went through then. So that was Neil Craig, was he part of it when you were there then? No. He was no. a student going through around. Yeah, oh. can't remember too much about Craig if he was around. I know that uh, Underdale, they had John Halbert was yeah. involved up there. and Yeah, I was at Underdale, so knew Jack yeah. really well. Yeah. yeah. Um, so did the football and basketball happen at the same time in Adelaide as well, or did you decide by then that it was just going to be footy? Hmm. I think it was. I think it was my final year of of year twelve, or the first time round at year twelve. I was selected 
to be in the state squad for under for under 16s I reckon it was for basketball mm-hmm. and then there was a requirement to come to town and practice from weekends and the same time footy was going on I was actually I trialed I came down and played probably six or seven under 17s games at Glenelg and something had to give so I <clears throat> I pulled the pin on state basketball just played locally and footy I decided to stay just in in Narracourt and played out at Kybe Kybe Bolite in that under 17 um, age group and then stepped up and started playing some A grade so, so, so that, that was the time I went footies the go so even Narracourt back then that had a connection to Glenelg as part of the region so you were That's sort right. of yeah would have so, gone to Glenelg anyway wouldn't correct you? winding back probably two years from that um the under-15 Sandboy Cup, it used to be called back in the day, where mm. they selected the, the different regions from around South Australia, and Glenelg zone was the southeast. So I played under-15s for Glenelg in the Sandboy Cup in '84, um, and that was the first little taste of it. And then after, uh, must have been '86, is when I remember Laurie Rosewarn from Glenelg and Tony Simons came down to uh, have some words and talk about. Coming down to Adelaide full time. Uh, did you ever stay at Laurie's house? No. Oh, um, when he came out to Adelaide, he was my neighbour. Was he? <laughs> yeah, I grew up yeah. in living next door. <laughs> okay, and still got a really good association with Laurie and his family, and 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 Simo, um, yeah. to be honest. So interesting that that initial contact has continued on, which right, is so. which is awesome. Which is powerful because it's a trust thing as well, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. The decision. We'll just go back to that decision because Greg Anderson had a huge decision to make with athletics and he probably could have gone to the Olympic Games uh, or AFL um, football. Um, was it a hard decision to choose football over basketball? Because there's, you know, there's not that many two-metre guys playing mm. basketball. Mm, true. Not sure what the absolute catalyst was. I think that I'd had a little bit of a taste um, in the connection to being with Glenelg in the SNFL. So for that, it was like there is that pathway I know which is probably a bit more... Um, a, <clears throat> a bit more longevity in that one and with the basketball I loved it but I hadn't made that state team because I didn't commit to it and I, th- I think there was just a, a touch more passion on the footy side so <laughs> I went well I've got to make a decision and I was loving it and enjoying it so I went with, with that road. So what do you remember your first uh, sort of what was the sort of most crucial game as your first sort of experience? Was it a league game or a seconds game? Sort of getting on the field and playing was the one that sort of mm. just re- you always think back. Oh, that was it. That was the I knew I was in the right place. Or I was look, Rick. I was really lucky. I think in the era that I came to Glenelg, they just won the '85 and '86 grand finals, and I came down in '87. So I was surrounded with. Guys who had played at in a successful side, they were driven individuals. There was a really good buzz around the club, and they were they were working hard. So, surrounding myself with some of those other players was was. I look back now, going, gee, I was actually lucky to have them, you know, pushing me. I remember guys like John Seabom. I was I always got stuck in Seabs team when it was in pre-season camps and stuff and he drove me really hard but I understand now that he was driving standards which needed to be to be stepping up and during trial games you know 
I even even internals like Peter Carey was still playing, so I'm rucking against, you know, arguably the the best ruckman that, you know South Australia has ever seen. So I get to ruck against some experienced people, and even trial games against other clubs, whether it's a league trial or even a a, a reserves games, I was rucking against some magnificent ruckmen who were in that in that era, and I. In fact, I'm going to a past players show this week, actually, mm. tomorrow. <laughs> um, and I get to see a lot of those guys I used to ruck against. I think, wow, you're talking about the, the guys like Mick Redden, Romano Negri, um, Johnston from Port, even Brett Chalmers from Port. Um, goodness me, there was there was guys who, like Neil Hine, Craig Balm, um, magnificent Know, players for their for their time, but also for me to have experience against these awesome men. What a great way to learn! Because I had to run harder, jump, jump higher, be smarter, um, get strong. You're up against a guy like whether it's Mick Redden or Michael Parsons at North Adelaide, you'd you'd have work cut out for you. <laughs> you'd you've almost chucked to the lines, but working against or working with your own strengths to actually do really well. A story I tell a little bit is <clears throat> the first year of my, my, my time, I remember when the news uh, was the, the paper that used to come out each day, I think they did a morning and an afternoon mm. edition, and um, <clears throat> Porter just signed um, Wes Fellows had come from Collingwood, and I thought, jeepers, I'm going to be rucking against him tomorrow. And I... <laughs> I pretty much crapped my pants there and then. I think I know this bloke. I've watched him play for Collingwood. He's a Copeland medalist. He was a he was a monster. And um, next time I'm I'm going to be rucking against him. And and I thought you know what, I'm here for a reason. I can actually I can jump. He wasn't as tall as me. So how the day panned out was I used to jump all over the top of him. He used to grunt and groan and try to chase me and want to belt me. But you know it was a matter of playing to your strengths, but it, it enabled me a, a chance to ruck and use my craft against someone who was really, really experienced, but it's a, just another challenge. Unless you're pushed as an athlete mm. against someone else, you, you will never, you'll never get better. So every week I was up against someone who was pretty awesome, so <laughs> I think <laughs> I, had to, I, I had to work to my strengths and mentally try to keep up, Yeah, you know, keep myself up and about um, so often. And who was your coach back then? Uh, what were some of the coaches you had? Just Well, I had six. Um, it was a very busy time. time. I, know, I was thinking time. that. I thought Hodgie yeah. was in there somewhere. So Cornsey was the first coach. Right. I'll try and get in order. We had Cornsey, Kim Hodgman. Uh, then we had Choco Williams. Um, I love Choco. He was probably my favourite coach in that in that setup. For me, he got the most out of me in in my career. He mm-hmm. was magnificent. Tony Simons, Wayne Stringer, and Tony McGuinness right. in that time. I see you finished before Brenton on a. Had... That's right. Right. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. But you just got into that as well. You're just sort of finishing. Yeah, I've just sort of finished as BH came on board, and yeah. I still used to, I suppose hang around the club, um, right. even though I'd sort of, you know, I was playing elsewhere after that, but it was, um, yeah. And look, 
people say, gee, that's a lot of disruption and, you know, a lot of coaches. And for me, again, looking back at what that's, what's that actually done for my development is that you do actually learn to become quite resilient if you're able to stick at it mm. and do things. So, yeah, new coaches come in and say, you know, you've got to prove yourself, which which you do, and you sort of start from scratch each time. But you learn things from different coaches. You learn, you learn how to um, hold yourself. You learn how to, again, play to your strengths, but not be disheartened by playing ones or twos or... You know, you're not there to play twos football. Well, I certainly wasn't. But in my career, I ended up playing, I think it was 102 reserves games, which, you know, certainly not what I went out to to strive for. But playing 102 reserves games gave me that, you know, drive that I don't I don't need to be here. I want to be playing league. Mm. So I had to spend some time in the Magoos and kicking the Jew <laughs> off. <laughs> That was sometimes better games to watch, to be honest. I know my time at Glenelg, the seconds games were yep. they were quite good. Blokes were trying, everyone was trying to get in the league, I suppose. Yep. Everyone was trying to show off a bit, I suppose. But yep. also, you had to play really well to get put up. So you did. You well, really I was excited that. Well, back then they used to play. Um, they used to televise the reserves on the telly live. Mm, mm. I thought I get to get on telly. <laughs> <laughs> that was my driver. <laughs> colour. <laughs> it was colour. It was yeah. magnificent. Sit and watch the twos, and then I thought, wow. And then if I ever got to play league footy, that'd be that'd be magic. Was there any aspirations to play v- back then VFL? Was there any approaches or um, interest to, for you um, to do that? Or look, for me, playing SANFL footy, I thought was about my limit. Um, I had a couple of good years pretty much under sort of Choco and and um, Tony Simons. And there was some interest, um, I think it was the year that Choco was coaching, it might have been 94 or 5. Um, Collingwood were having a little bit of a, a sniff. Um, not sure what happened about that. I, I, I did put in a, a nomination for, for the draft. Nothing came of that, but, mm. you know... I was. <clears throat> I remember Choco came up to me and said, "I've got got someone who's having a bit of a, some inquiries about what's going on." And look, I was chuffed to be honest. Mm. I, I knew pretty much knew nothing would probably come of it. I was a bit of a late bloomer, and these days, you know, would never have got any looking. Mm-hmm. The um, at the same time you were teaching or at uni, so where where was your first sort of teaching position? I needed to stay in Adelaide to keep that teaching, so um, I started working doing some uh, relief teaching at Hamilton High School or Hamilton Secondary School. Mm-hmm. And in fact, one of the one of the uh, vice presidents, or who was on the board, John Robinson, uh, was a deputy there at the time, and he introduced me to the school. I, they had a really good PE program, and I started working with the, the PE staff there regularly and then in order to, to keep my to my hand in it I was I think I worked on and off for about four years as their regular TRT teacher from <laughs> PE to whatever was going so oh, <clears throat> look it was really helpful for my development and has been able to have that source of income and doing my teaching but I was close to home I could still play my football football was still my number one priority mm-hmm but it gave me some flexibility. So relief teaching, I didn't have to do any preparation. 
I was out the gate before the, the students pretty much, <laughs> the clock would go and there was no other really responsibility. So I was able to spend that time that I had there to, to focus on preparing myself for footy. Did you? There was a few finals in that, that era that you were in. Not not many. No. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think we played in a elimination. What that might have been under. I think it might have been an elimination in a in a qualifying or something under under Choco. Mm. Yeah, I reckon that's about it. I didn't really play. I was I was playing reserves during Hodgie's time, and that was probably the last real crack at finals where Glenelg were were up and amongst it so mm. I only got a little bit of a taste unfortunately yeah. <laughs> and was with today's football uh, looking at the modern game do you see yourself fitting in would have you fitted in better in the modern game or you, what do you reckon you might not have had to ruck you might have been a, mm. if you're an Essendon you were yeah. short <laughs> <laughs> absolutely oh look today's game I was certainly a, a classic plotter um, as a as a person. I used to I could ruck all day. I had pretty good endurance. Certainly wasn't fast. Actually, I had a I was at West Adelaide last weekend watching watching a game and telling the story about Mark Micken and I were rucking against each other in his <laughs> in his last last time playing at West Adelaide and. Still remember in the northern pocket, this ball spilled out towards the boundary, and there's McCulley and Micken in slow motion running towards the ball. Uh, these two big gangly dinosaurs. <laughs> I could hear the crowd laughing, mm. Where, and I think the ball just eventually just spilled over the over the end, and it was it was a bit of a comedy really. But look, today's game, yes, they are athletes. They're fast. They can. You you need to be adaptable. Whereas back when I was playing, you pretty much played want a position or not and for me I'm either on the ground or I'm not mm. so I was wasn't real dimensional um, obviously didn't kick too many goals in my day I was a good tap ruckman and um, used that to my advantage yeah um, back to work uh, did you stay in school teaching or where mm. did you go from Hamilton yeah so from Hamilton I got into the world of um, behavior management I uh, had a school called Bowden Brompton Community School, tapped me on the shoulder and said, come and play with us. I'd worked with some sort of kids in the learning centres uh, and, and found that I was actually quite good at relating and always have been relating to kids who are a bit off the rails. And uh, Bowden Brompton certainly was had the right clientele for that. Loved working there. Uh, eight years at Bowden Brompton, uh, pretty much dealing with lots of issues every day. I used to rock up thinking what's going to happen today. So most of the students who had been expelled or not allowed to go back to other schools ended up at Bowdoin Brompton. So it was a real mixed bag. But um, I learned a lot about thinking on your feet, being able to adapt to situations, <clears throat> being able to plan ahead but also problem solve and working out conflict resolution, which Bowdoin Brompton was a Pretty pivotal time in what I was doing in my teaching. And, and you're the tallest one in the room. <laughs> Did that help? <laughs> it didn't really matter with these kids. <laughs> they didn't care. Yeah, it didn't really matter. <laughs> I, I do remember the first day I walked in there and this walked out of the staff room as it was and these kids, fairly tall lads, sort of faced up to me face to face and said, who there for you? And I said, g'day mate, I'm Stewie. What's your name? 
he was just looking for a reaction and he didn't get it and he just walked off. Mm. Thought you just got to be who you are and not get sucked into <coughs> what they're trying to drag out of you. So, mm. hence I was able to have that have that rapport with with those with those kids and actually get to know them. That's really good. So, did you go back to uni as, again for the second time? Or? No, I after teaching I went into the building game. For a while, my um, father-in-law still got a building company, Tandy Constructions. I went and played in that space for a while, and people thought, "Gee, that's a bit different, going from teaching to to uh, the building game." And I said, "Well, if you actually think about it, I was doing a lot of sort of project management um, and and on-site supervision. It was all about being organised, um, communicating with people, and." making things happen mm-hmm. so I was you know using my teaching skills in another space and learning other skills um, so that was for about four or five years um, then I moved across into the into the space of working with uh, personal leadership program youth opportunities uh, that was magnificent <clears throat> so for me really that was about not only learning about yourself about setting goals, communication, conflict resolution, um, motivation, etc. but how you can support other people in doing that role. And that was really pivotal, I think, in helping to shape um, where I was going for my development as myself as an individual, but how I can use those skills in conjunction with my teaching to do things with other people. So that, that, that was good fun. I went back to the building world for a couple of years to build my own home. That was, again, being a bit selfish, but it was about putting myself out of my comfort zone to try and learn and develop as a as a as a person who's. I've always been a teacher, but I always also wanted to, you know, achieve some pretty awesome things. And building my own home was a was a was a big event. <laughs> um, then I then I moved on to to uh, to the space which I really love, which you've set up now. Yeah. So let's talk about setting up <coughs> your new business and just sort of just walk us through. Yeah. Um, exciting what you're doing. Yeah. So um, I get asked often. They go, well, how did you get into to this space? And I said, well, really, I've been. I'd describe it as dabbling in the world of athlete welfare for probably about 15 years. Uh, when I was still at Bowdoin Brompton, I knew that in the AFL system, there was a role within AFL um, that was known as the, the player welfare or the player development um, role. And at the time back then, Phil Harper from the Crows was doing that role and David Hutton was doing the same role at Port. And I remember vividly that I went and saw them both in that one particular week and sat in their offices and said, tell me what you do. I think, I think I'm quite interested in what this space really is. And from then on, I started thinking about how I can use my teaching skills to get, in that, get into that world. I um, used to start meeting with a few uh, peers in the, in the sporting world and asking them questions and sort of finding my way. And then the advent of working with the Youth Opportunities Personal Leadership space helped me to think about how that can be used in in that area. And then it was only a few years ago now that 
I found out about a course which was a graduate certificate in elite athlete mentoring, which was essentially set up for the AFL. And I thought, wow, I've, I've, I, I need to do this. So once I actually got into that course, and to do it, you need to be working full-time with elite athletes to qualify, which you know, knocks out most people. <laughs> Thankfully, I was doing some doing some work at Glenelg Footy Club with the leadership group and a few other different sporting groups around the place. And at the same time, I decided to create my current business, Next Level Elite, which was about bringing together athletes from different sports together so they can learn from each other, but also that we can share experiences and <coughs> knowledge so that we can in, improve and helping them to, to be the best that they can be. Just with that, there's, of the people I've been talking to, there's a, a lot of the Olympians that I've interviewed so far, there, there's a, this, this seems to be a big hole somewhere there for depression after, after they've completed their so-called sport or they've mm. won their Olympic gold medal and yep. some of the kids who have been on my program are the dual Olympians but they all talk about the depression after mm. it's uh, is that some an area you sort of started to be involved in as well sure there's and, and often we hear about the the athletes that have that have finishing finishing up etc and the, the the struggles that they have in you know normal life because they've been so entrenched in that in that world of being looked after or focused on just the sport and the expectations and the highs of things and I suppose where where I've always come from and knowing that that's sort of happening and learning now from athletes when they're coming through if we can help to support them in thinking about what that looks like in the as the career after sport earlier the better then it can actually equip them with those skills as young people to actually, you know, open their open their eyes and have a bit more awareness about what that is for them as a um, as a young person after the sport. But it can also be happening right now. Yeah. So, look, it's so much easier obviously to catch anything a little bit earlier. Even if they're not practicing it, they can at least be thinking about it and planning it a touch further, and at least having them skilled up a little bit more about, you know. What could I do? What are what are my interests? Um, it's really hard to tell a young person that you might be finished tomorrow. Mm, or an injury. An injury. You just yep. take it straight out. Absolutely. Um, but they've all got the blinkers on. They're focused, which is awesome. It's about a, for them to spend time taking those blinkers off for short periods of time and exploring what are those other things that they really need in the here and now, but also for the time beyond so it's also a fast moving time isn't it it happens very very quickly and it, it is a short it's time frame they're actually at their best it, it's sometimes very short hmm. and they've planned a whole life for something that's only happened for a short amount of time and then yep. there's still tons yep. of time left after yeah oh for sure and look i've had some experience with um a young athlete who went to his first olympics at rio just recently and for him, coming off the high of going to Olympics, said, I really want to experience that again. But what does that mean for me? How do I keep myself up and about? Because that was quite awesome. Um, even though he didn't achieve exactly what he wanted, he, he knew that he could do better. Mm. And what is it that for, for him as an individual to, to um, 
how, how does he skill up? What are those things that he needs to do differently to prepare himself better for the next Olympics, but also be ready and get through the next four years to be up and about, mm. and not burn yourself out? So it's different for different individuals. Some are more self-driven, but others are haven't even thought about and don't even want to think about what that looks or feels or sounds like the life after. Afterwards, yeah. Or the t- small time after the competition. They don't even think that comes into the fray that they'll just roll on from one to the other. And that's that's only from experience. Mm. Yeah. I just know with um, when I was at Glenelg, Mackey got drafted to uh, Geelong. And mm. last weekend he retired, he was carried off retiring. I thought, my God, that was so quick. Yep. As for me, as a, an outsider, I, I think, wow, that went so quickly. And he obviously played a whole lot of games for mm. Geelong and had a great career. Yep. But it's already over. Yes. And I think, wow, that's sort of incredible how fast even watching how quickly people's start and finish yeah well you're invested in what you're doing Mm. um whether that's your kids growing up or doing your job or playing your sport or following your heroes all of a sudden it's it's gone because you are so invested in that time with those people because you love it Mm. that you sort of get you get lost in time Mm. it's a bit (laughs) of a warp (laughs) did um have you do you do much um same thing, I'm going to stick on the depression thing a little bit, but do you do much debriefing with your group that come to you at the moment, Do you, like after competition debriefs? Mm. Um, and how do they go? Because like, they are such a high, going to the Olympics, and um, Curtis Marshall, who's gone on to come seventh in the World Championships last week, interviewing him a few weeks ago, he said he was really depressed when he got back because he was on such a high travelling and aeroplanes and hotels and yep. Olympic villages, and seeing... 20 of his superstar people he's looked up on his whole life, he's suddenly in the same hallway staying with them. Mm. He got back to Adelaide and he's moved into his house and he's sitting in the lounge going, oh, what do I do now? Like, yep. He really felt it. Like, yeah. Quite hard. And he's 18. Yeah, absolutely. I, a large part of my role as, a, as an athlete mentor is really understanding the person. So apart from... In our program, where we do a, a nine-week program with these different topics each week, which is fine. In between, there's one-on-one sessions, which you know that can be about absolutely anything. But the other element I know is really crucial, and I spend as much effort as I can, is actually going and watching their training, watching their competitions, and actually just being there. Because sometimes, and this has happened in one particular occasion I watched an athlete at a competition they didn't actually know I was there it was interstate I made an effort to go over there (laughs) things didn't go quite to plan in the first competition I was able to connect with them and said well I'm actually here what they was able to do is address that issue or that feeling for that athlete on the here and now and actually deal with it rather than say, oh, we'll see you in two weeks and we'll work out how that's going. So mm-hmm. having access to someone who's not only the mentor, but I, I see myself, I'm, I'm Switzerland, I'm, I'm the neutral party to, <laughs> to their sport, to their, to their coaches, to their peers. So I bring questions or ideas or examples that they get them thinking about, well, yeah, it's not such a big deal or... What is it else do I need to get myself up and about? So in answer to your question is that 
yes, I like to debrief about what's gone on with competitions. And so within our groups of the athletes that have done the Next Level Elite program, they all know each other indirectly. And some of them do the course, who are invited to come and sit in other sessions. So most of them see each other at the sassy gym. They know each other from the <laughs> gym. <laughs> I know you. I actually met you now. I know who you are. There's that level of support in between different sports where they have never even connected with those people. So if there's a competition on, whether they're competing locally or um, you know internationally, which we've got a couple at the moment, the other athletes are actually there with them and keeping in check, and then they can even check in with them. I can do that, do it, do that, but they they've always got that option of picking up the phone and say, "Hey, Stewie, we need to have a coffee," whether it's cool things that have happened or not so great things just to let it out and do you deal with um, people getting very nervous uh like other people call it stage fright but just that pre-competition nerves Mm. i i know with the team i took away i had steve ovet come and talk to my state team and he just stood there and said we're all mad we're all mad he said, we all get nervous. I get nervous. I'm no different than you. And it was really funny. He was one of the greatest athletes of my time yep. of athletics, a world record, multiple world record holders. He said, oh, I used to get so nervous. But we all get nervous. You get nervous the first day of school. Don't yep. you accept that? There's nothing to worry about. Yeah. I thought it was great. Oh, it was yeah. just the way he did that. I thought it was brilliant. Great piece of, piece of advice. And yeah. I, I've, I find myself often, Rick, helping to normalise what most athletes bring up as what they see as being massive issues. Mm. So whether it's... Um, you know, nerves before competition or overthinking, that, that's one that hop, pops up often, mm. then, okay, we've identified that that's what it is for you that's holding you back a little bit, but it's normal. But it's how you actually address that and how we as a group support you to make that easier to actually go and do what you do. And I think the quicker the athletes can understand that and and that's where hearing it from other athletes or other ex-athletes or other coaches who actually know their stuff and normalise it for them, they can have a sense of, ah, you know, the pressure is off. And the only ones who are actually controlling that those thoughts is them themselves. Mm. So we, we talk about how they can control that a lot, a lot easier so that you're actually spending energy preparing in other ways rather than worrying happen yeah which is a, it's a normal only, thing you can only do the best you can do it's there's nothing else you can do but your best of course you can't control the environment of around. course yeah. so you talk about curtis marshall and i've certainly had had conversations with curtis and he he's had a he's had an amazing fast transition mm. and probably hasn't even had time to think about what's going on but all of a sudden he's on the world stage against you know some of his you know idols and i'm sure you know, you have times in the hotel rooms and flying that, and he's an individual sport. So that's something that I've found that most of the athletes who are more so with from individual sports are seeking support from mentors who, because they don't have the team environment or the coaches all around them who they can lean on mm. or get advice. The individual ones spend more time on their own yeah lots of thinking you know lots of thinking time you think of triathletes yeah <laughs> and curtis went on to zurich and came fourth last week so in the last diamond league yes and did australia oh, a record for him anyway personal best which is just incredible yeah. absolutely incredible coming up to the commonwealth games Mass- massive yeah. effort um what about egos how do you um 
it's hard, like, especially like individual athletes. You I always tell my athletes, have the ego in your head and just don't let it out. You tell yourself you're going to smash everybody or be fantastic, but don't. Mm. I always push, don't actually show it, just do it. Mm. Um, but do you, do you have kids like that you have to deal with and try to like curve their egos or especially what they see on TV? Yes. Look, I've because I deal with athletes across all, like a majority, like a, a, a huge range of sports, it's interesting the the different mentality from different athletes. Fortunately, in my in my case, when someone is actually recommended um, to come and have a chat with me, I will sit with them to work out if they are a suitable athlete to be part of what we do at Next Level Elite. So, um, for me, it's finding out what is their motivation, what's their purpose. They actually want to be part of the group, and I've based around my mentoring program and the one-on-one stuff about giving back. So if that person's not willing to share information, be open, be honest with not only myself or other athletes, then they're probably not the person I'd like to be working with. So I had a couple of athletes early days who the ego was quite dominant in their setup. And, and they pretty much voted with their feet being involved with things, which was fine for me because I'd rather have someone else who has got less of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so not not pick and choose, but I'd make sure I'm working with people who ego is not going to get in the way. Um, but if they really want to be part of it, it's finding out <coughs> how that ego can be managed in a way that can still, they are who they are, mm-hmm. but the ego is not going to be... A disruptor in their in their journey. So, what other sort of level things you're looking at with the people you're looking after? How what do you have any key sections or key departments you like to put them into as you're working with them? Hmm. The different topics we look at, which which we do from how to handle the media to public speaking, finances, building your brand. That's uh, a huge one. Um, Athletes are not used to want to push their brand or even think they've got one. Everyone's got a brand, and it's about what you're trying to push towards other people, how you can use it to your advantage. Preparing for competition is is massive. And again, that's the things like the overthinking, dealing with resilience. There are topics, and when I'm doing one-on-ones, that's when people can talk about whatever it is for them and that's a really broad range of things so it could be from time management to how to communicate with someone to how do I get a new coach to how do I you know how, how do I deal with this injury how do I deal with my poor form and part of it can be really just their attitude or it might be awareness hmm. or it might be the awareness of the way they're actually communicating or it could be awareness of who are those people in your inner sanctum who are there for the right reasons or the wrong reasons. Mm. <laughs> so I think for the individual, I like to understand how they tick. And for a lot of them, during the, proce- the process of being mentored by someone, and I always explain that mentoring is assisting someone to make change. And... If you can understand what you actually are after and why you are doing that, so understanding the why is massive. If you can understand why we're having this conversation with each other, then you can get a lot more out of it rather than 
ticking the box. So for young people to understand what their parameters are, I help them to uh, step out of their comfort zone by asking questions, <laughs> uh, which is important. So for any, if you want to grow in anything, you need to be able to take a bit of a risk, try something new, be up for thinking differently, be up for mixing with different people. So we try to help them to think about you know, networking with other people. You never know who you might come across. So that building your brand stuff, but understanding who you are as an individual and where you're actually going. And you were saying before, you know, what is happening after sport? Mm-hmm. Am I studying? How much time have I got in my hands? I'm so busy, I'm training. Or well, are you? So I'll, I'll ask those <laughs> questions as as Switzerland. Yeah, we're thinking about training a lot, but not necessarily thinking about training. training. Yeah. yeah, are you recovering? Mm-hmm. You know, you know, how much how much time do you spending just with your friends or your family? Sometimes those questions can be a bit confronting because they might think you might be pointing the finger. All I'm doing is asking them to be a bit more aware of what that looks like for them. Are they having fun? <laughs> exactly. Are they enjoying it. <laughs> exactly. I've got some tennis players that don't seem to be enjoying their American, American yeah, tennis no, at the moment. They're living no. in York Open at the moment. And look, look, that all comes back to, and we'd like to establish this early when I'm working with new athletes, what is their actual purpose? You know, Why do they do it? And I've seen a few light bulbs go off as far as they you know, nailed in why they actually got into it at the start and what they loved about that sport. Mm. You know, what, what, Why do you run? <laughs> what, why do you cycle around a... A track going round and round and round. You know, why do you want to, you know, jump high over a pole six metres in the air? What is it about that you're doing it? And until that person can understand why, then the people surround them can help them achieve that goal. Do you get many um, kids that just want it to happen too fast? They're, they're, you talked about yourself being a late maturer. Kids today, oh, I just know of my squad, they just expect so much so mm. quickly mm. and uh you know do you have do you have much of that or mm. is it or that is you, is it is it is it they're trying to succeed too quickly or is it just to try to get that thing ticked off i've done that now and yeah, get on to something else yeah i think there's there's a bit of a mix there one, one example i had was um with a, a triathlete who is so super dedicated and for that triathlete they will do everything in their in their power to make sure that they've they've done everything right. What is slowly changing for that athlete is for them to to start to trust those people who are in positions around them, such as coaches and mentors and, and peers, for them to understand the process. More training doesn't mean you're going to be absolutely better. Mm. And as an example, and the reason I brought up the triathlete is because because there is so much training across three disciplines that managing their body is super crucial. So to be injured is going to put you back. So training more doesn't mean it's going to help you. So it's training smarter, but listening to those experts around you. Um, who's training them? Triathletes seem to have a real problem correct. with who actually is their coach. Correct. And uh, Yep, and what, what is that coach doing for them? Uh, is it the right coach? Um, do you need different advice? Um, so going back to the question, do they need it quicker? Some of them think that they just train. They want success, or they want to make a team, or they want to make a time. Everyone's got different goals. So 
for me it's understanding what what that goal is and for them to understand clearly what that goal is for them and what it is that is being put into place for that goal to be ticked off mm-hmm. so if it's you know if it's an olympics well you've got four years to work that out well probably a couple of years and then you're really setting in in into stone what those real little goals are along the way whereas an individual athlete who might be doing great things but hasn't got that direction then if they're lost it's like in a normal life describe it like being on the roundabout you can be going around and round. you're not sure which exit to actually get off mm. because you haven't got that right advice but if you know that while you're doing that and it will take time then they if they can trust that process then they can get there that's easier said than done, Rick. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you've experienced it. <laughs> yeah. I know, I go home, telling, yeah, my head's exploding some nights. So. Yep. Even yep. today I had a, an athlete who's, I think she's training brilliantly. and she, Because the girls that are six, year old, six years older than her are beating her at training. She thinks she's not doing well. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yeah. You're doing great. Yeah. <laughs> yep. You know, I've got to re- now I've got to go back. And hopefully they're listening to this later. I'll go back and reinforce that that yep. you are going really well, and yeah. in six years' time you won't be where you are. You'll be. <laughs> yeah. You know, Absolutely. You've got to look forward further than just one or two training sessions. Yes. To base yeah. your career. <laughs> and understanding what that time and experience actually means, mm. and growth, and um, I suppose game sense or you know the smarts around it Mm. but i think another aspect too is for some of the younger athletes is actually working a little bit with the parents um so i do a little bit of individual mentoring where parents come to me and say hey would you mind working with my teenage son or daughter who they've found their pathway but what is it they're they're not listening to me (laughs) but i say nothing against you as the parent that's just how things roll but also in the process of parents who have good athletic kids are also learning what it means to manage that athlete. So if they can be part of that process with the coach or the mentor, so they're actually you're actually working together to support that athlete, which might mean giving them less space, sorry, more space, less questions, you know, less pushing less of your own goals because the parent goal might be completely different than the coach's goal then you've got a confused kid going well i'm trying to satisfy everyone don't want to let anyone down who do i listen to um and that that can be a really tough call Mm. so i actually love talking to parents of 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 kids to find out what's happening in their space because they're often a bit confused or lost as well yeah, that's okay. It's normal. Yeah, yeah and it's normalising it for them. And you, yeah, you don't put your own experience onto what you're trying to do with yeah, the kid. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's all they all want the good things for them, but yeah. <laughs> that 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 can be detrimental if you look at what other advice is coming from other angles to that to that kid. Where do you see your business going next? Is there a next level for you? You're talking about mentoring other mm. people. Mm. Where, where's it go for you? Your next step with the business? Have mm. you got it? Is there a little dream in there somewhere? Well, look, when I first started Next Level Elite, I knew that I knew that there are so many athletes out there in so many different sports who are looking for some support. And there's only one, Stuart McCulley, who's <laughs> delivering the program, and I've got a great group of presenters who help me 
to run that program and eventually I believe that that, that program will be able to be self-sufficient and can run itself and I don't really need to be part of that. I love the one-on-one stuff mm. um, but I love working with groups who, if there's groups of young people or sporting groups, what's happening now for me, for example, is branching out to sporting organisations who actually bring together those athletes and working with them so it can be a bit more sport specific for them and tailor make what those pro- programs need for be for those groups of people. I mean, if they want to do some one-on-one stuff, they certainly can do that. But an ideal world for me, I love helping people get better at what they do. And if that means that I can coordinate, facilitate more of this mentoring for other mentors who can work under my my um, guidance as the I suppose the the way I go about things. Um, I love to roll it out to more country areas. Um, I think they don't have they're not got access to the resources that we have here, mm-hmm. and there are so many of them out in those areas. So I'm looking to branch out to go to to regional South Australia, but also branching out to um, uh, around Australia to different areas and. And the way computers work these days, well, that, that, that's know. a good point actually. So I work with a few um, South Australian athletes who have been competing um, international. So we had some who are in France. We had another triathlete who is from New Zealand. We do Skype mentoring. Mm. So with the, today's modern technology, it's a matter of getting behind a, a, an iPhone or a computer, and it can be done pretty much anywhere. So mm. it's the same as sitting, you know across from a, a table having a coffee yep. but you've got access to being doing to be able to do that with those people and, and not lose that opportunity because if they need you there and then you don't want to wait oh, I'll see you in two weeks when you're yeah, back no. you just lose its grunt yeah, yeah. yeah okay the last question for you today is what makes you happy what makes me happy is seeing people learn grow and do things on their own I've always been the one who will help other people. So what makes me happy is um, seeing more and more people achieve what they want to get better at. And that's not just athletes. I, I work with businesses, I work with coaches, I work with just people. So if I can help people um, get better at what they do and they come and say, Stewie, I'm actually doing it on my own now, that's awesome. Thank you for talking today, Stewie. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Rick. Thank you for listening to Talk Town. Remember, we are now streaming on Stitcher and also iTunes. Please forward any of my stories to your friends and stay tuned to more episodes on Talk Town.